This show discusses serious and often disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. What dost thou want? Wouldst thou like the taste of butter? A pretty dress? Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? The goat of Mendes. The devil himself. How to get burned? How to get burned? How to get burned? How to get burned? I don't know! Oh, I so I was looking at um your and Megan's um familiar challenge. I want to manifest that jackalope into being a real animal. Because it's so <laughs> fucking cute. It's so fuzzy, I want to die. <laughs> it's so fuzzy. I really love it. Yeah, does it hurt to think about how oh, fuzzy it is? It's so fuzzy. Is Megan, that on your uh, your Instagram, Justin? It's on Megan's. Megan draws the fuzziest things. Megan's very good at drawing fuzzy things. That's why she does it professionally. Whereas I posted the scraggly ass hair from the witch. Today. I love that also. <laughs> and I think therein you can really see the differences between our approaches to mark making. <laughs> oh God, it's so oh, fuzzy. It's so fuzzy. <laughs> On that note, welcome to What's Wrong With Us, the podcast that asks, hey, how much will a neat statue like that set you back at Pier 1 Imports? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Justin. I'm James. I'm also James. And I'm Jazz. Hooray! Hey, we're all here. And we are, we, we are, oh, wait, are we all here? We're not wait, all who, who here. Missing? Who's missing? Unfortunately, Lizzie couldn't be here tonight because it's her turn to water the graves. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for taking one for the team on Thanks, that one, Lizzie. Lizzie. We'll see you she, next time. She does enjoy watering graves. And she's okay. Honestly, she's she, fine. She's, fine. Like, she's doing fine. She's, fine. She, she's having a good time with it. She texted me a little bit ago. She's... Draping the umbilical cords just so. Just, just so. perfect. I feel like if anybody was to be, you know, if anybody was to be, like, uh, given the job of watering graves, <laughs> Lizzie's the one. <laughs> None of us would be given that job. Lizzie would do it enthusiastically. She would do it... Uh, with attention to detail that the rest of us wouldn't bring to the project. That's a fair assessment. <laughs> uh, did anybody watch a movie this week? I don't know. Well, I watched a movie. I don't know about the rest of you. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, so One of us talk, the movie. We're, we're here to talk about The Wicker Man. Yeah! 1973. Uh, we're not going to talk about the Nicolas Cage adaptation. Says except, you. of course, we're going to talk about the Nicolas Cage 100% going to talk about that movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have thoughts. Uh, I'm sure all of you out there have seen The Wicker Man, but if you haven't, turn this off immediately and go watch it. Yeah, it's on Netflix. It's 90 minutes. We'll be here when you get back. Hold on. Let's wait for everybody for a second. All right. Okay, thanks for coming back. (laughs) All right, you're back. Uh, And spoilers will commence. Uh, Just in case you didn't just watch the film just now, I'll give a brief recap. The Wicker Man is a film directed by Robin Hardy and written by Anthony Schaefer. It stars Edward Woodward as Sergeant Howie, a prudish Scottish police officer who ventures to the island of Summer Isle to investigate the supposed disappearance of a young girl. (laughs) There, he encounters a community of pagan worshippers whose customs both shock and infuriate the devoutly Christian Howie. He begins to suspect that the villagers, 
whose ranks include British horror legends Christopher Lee and Ingrid Pitt, plus at least the face of Brit actress Britt Eklund, are all part of a conspiracy to hide and sacrifice the missing girl. Little does he know who the actual sacrifice is meant to be. <laughs> it's him. It's, it's him. him. He's, he's the sacrifice. Oh, yeah, it's him, you guys. Yeah, no, he's the sacrifice. <laughs> So, The Wigger Man has been called the Citizen Kane of horror films. What? And has been, <laughs> has been ranked amongst the very top in several horror best of lists. Wow. But is it any good? <laughs> let's find out. Yeah. Let's just see. Hold on. Hold, hold the phone there, pal. Hold the phone there, Jack. We've got some hot <laughs> we takes. we got some hot takes about this movie. <laughs> Actually, they're not all that hot. We all liked it. All right. Uh, yes. Well, I... You know, more spoilers, it's good. But let's still talk about it. All right. Wicker Man, everybody. Highs and lows. What do you got? Uh, so there was so much creepy old guy in this movie. Dude. <laughs> like that first scene. You mean so much style goals? Is that what you mean? Like so many absolutely Instagram worthy fits? Like. Dude, like the fisherman, the white fisherman's turtleneck with the like cardigan over it and the like, there's just, there's a lot of shit that would blow up on like menswear blogs from this movie. Like you take any of these guys and they'll become Instagram celebrities in a week. Sure. So that first scene where it opens up and Sergeant Howie's there with like the photo of Rowan and he's just showing it around to everyone and all these guys take it like and they're they're older gentlemen and yeah and they're just looking at this the picture in just like this gross way that I just couldn't shake like it was so icky and predatory yeah they're trying to draw him in you know by leering at her like a pervert yeah they were definitely like it was super pervy they're actually an island full of weird pagan perverts yeah that's little saint james hey um it's weird that they all had to hold it too like you couldn't just sort of hold it up or like you know a couple look over the shoulder every one of them had to hold it and in both of his hands and then pass it on yeah Yeah, it was reverent right yeah Wow, that's a little girl there, isn't it? Oh, look at My, that. Haven't I haven't seen, seen one of those in some time now. What? Uh, yeah, I, I had a really hard time shaking that part, especially like watching it in a modern context. I was like, oh, gross. <laughs> but I mean, everything else was great. One of the things that really jumped out at me is they kept referencing that they were hares, not rabbits. And mm-hmm. that's something that come up in The Witch. And so I really liked um, that commitment to like, no, there's a difference between, you know, magic and whatever our belief systems are. And I thought that was like a, a really nice little detail. I So spoiler alert, this is the first time I've watched this version of this movie. <gasps> oh, wow. I've, I, I saw the Nicolas Cage version a while back and I have lived on the YouTube clips of the best parts of that movie for <laughs> many, many years, basically since it came out. The bees! Not the bees. Not the bees. How to get burned. How to get burned. Uh, maybe I like that clip. Maybe that's why it's in the theme song. Hey. Uh, I don't know. Our composer works in mysterious ways, and he's very expensive. Yeah. But, um, but hireable. <laughs> uh, but... I was not expecting that this movie was going to be a musical. 
Um, it was. It was a Disney musical. It was. No, yeah, it was, like it was great. Disney musical. I'm it's here like for a, it. It was super weird and creepy and like, but like, it was just, it, it, it definitely caught me off guard. So I remember um, when, I remember smoking a bunch of weed and um, getting drunk with some friends of mine and listening to a band from 1971 called Comus, who is this like really weird British folk band. Um, who does a lot of like really like witchy kind of like evil sounding folk and they would fit right the fuck into this whole thing it's like <laughs> all like very like it's like a mix of like shanties and like weird kind of like uh, British folk uh, and all of it is unnerving in this context I'm just gonna say it guys this movie is indistinguishable from Beauty and the Beast <laughs> <laughs> And there's so much more too, like so the music jumps out, yeah, and then the um, music's fucking great. Like it's totally. like I was I had forgotten about it honestly before I watched it, and it was it was so it was such a pleasant surprise. Like oh right, the whole thing's a musical, and there's like the weird like sex dance that she does. Oh, I hated it. There's the weird like Maypole song that they sing. I hated that too. Where it's like uh, it's like all weird. It's like it's about sex in this like really creepy way. Like <laughs> it's like a Beauty and the they Beast was to make rated sex not sexy. <laughs> it's like Beauty and the Beast was rated NC seventeen. Word. <laughs> I, and I must say, like I Isn't there, like an Anne Rice Beauty and the Beast. Oh gross. So and that's like I I don't do good with like I don't know PDA whatever that is yeah. like yeah. just Word. sex and movies like just kind of squigs me out and I, I don't I'm not like sex shamey I want people to do everything and anything they do I just like get a little squigged out when I see it in movies <laughs> especially when it's like contrived and you're just like oh yucky <laughs> also I don't I don't know about and Anne Rice, Beauty and the Beast, but there was a TV show in the late 80s starring Ron Perlman. That one. And Linda Hamilton. Ooh, Linda uh, Hamilton. That's a great one. It's on Amazon Prime, and Lizzie and I may have watched an episode or two of it, and it may be <laughs> terrible, but it exists. Anyways. So a, a couple more highs I have for this movie is um, I like the way it plays with place and the is this real, is this not real thing, because it has the same kind of introduction like Via did where there's a title card that's like this is all real and we thank the people because this really happened and and I like that they played with that um, I love the creepy masks wardrobe yeah. was A plus yeah. and I think my only real 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 low is um, there was just too much exposition at the end my, one of my best friends got married on Halloween and had a uh, their whole wedding ceremony was people wearing masks like that I love it. It was fucking great. It was in the middle of the woods. I might have something to say about that later. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe was it because you were there? <laughs> um, yeah. So there's a lot to like about this movie. Like, there's a lot of there's more moral complexity to this than maybe some people might be used to seeing in like older classic horror films. Absolutely. There are strong performances from. I mean, Christopher, Christopher Lee. How do you go Lee wrong with him? Delivers an absolutely iconic performance. As Lord Summerisle. Like, he is wholly evil and menacing while being effortlessly charming, and it fucking owns. He's so good in this movie. Agreed. I mean, 
But uh, also, like, the innkeeper? Oh, that yeah. Fucking creep? The fucking innkeeper rules. Like, and also that whole scene in the inn where they sing the landlord's daughter and, like, Yuck. everyone's like, right, gross. Um, but um, everyone's kind of, like, chiming in. It's, like, very, it's very much, like, going, getting back to how this is basically Beauty and the Beast. That's, like, the Gaston uh, song from Beauty and the Beast, yeah, essentially. With is. everybody chiming in. <laughs> Yeah, the, the grave digger. Oh, it's so good. Uh, it's got striking visuals. The animal masks we talked about, uh, watering the graves we mentioned. The <laughs> hair in the coffin is so good. The hair in the coffin and was, yeah. the, everybody fucking in the fields. Like that's very pagan. Sure. Wait, no, nobody. Uh, okay, cool. I mean, I no, yes. I'm alone in my principles over here. <laughs> I mean, yes. nobody's arguing with you. It's like a fucking tarot card, like <laughs> right? <laughs> it is. Yeah, if if other movies we've watched have been like lifted directly out of paintings, this movie was lifted directly out of tarot cards. Like yeah. every single scene, I mean, was just painted out of a tarot card. Well, I mean, that's like that's like peak pagan logic right there, right? You're like <laughs> trying to like bring fertility to your field. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna fucking them because. What is more fertile than the act of sex, and, right? And you're going to dress a dead tree with streamers. You dress a dead tree with streamers, like... You know, a woman breastfeeding while holding an egg and sitting on a grave. Super uh, normal oh, shit. yeah, I forgot. That was a, so subtle. A, one hand, a one-handed dwarf with coins over his eyes. Yep. Like, when he's searching for Rowan and, like, all the town is fucking with him and that girl pretends to be dead just in the closet to fuck with him. So good. Oh, wait. One of my favorite things that I just remembered is, like, all the weird sweets in the sweet shop. Like, she has weird little, like, chocolate ram's heads and skulls. Well, they come back at that one point and she's cutting, like, some weird little girl version of a king cake. Yeah, totally. There's that. (laughs) Really strange. There's, like, all the chocolate hair. I I want there to be... I want that sweet shop. You want an occult candy somewhere. store? I want a candy This is part of our pop-up. Candy store. From... We have, need to have a whole pop-up with the, you know. This is a continuation of the same pop-up. This is this is a continuation of the same pop-up. Basically, we're basically going to create, somebody give me a couple billion dollars to make a casino like this in Vegas. <laughs> is all I'm saying. We'll do it. We'll fucking do it. <laughs> Gosh, that'd be so cool. Wouldn't it? <laughs> Like, you see people making, like, you know, hyper-realistic, like, gory cakes and stuff. Uh, and I feel like I don't see many people making this kind of, like, creepy, rustic, symbolic magic, like, ram's head sweets. Like, right? So and the, that's, like, as he pans through the window, it's a shame because, like, the camera work is, you know, before Steadicam, so it's a little shaky and you can't really focus on everything. And they rush it, which they shouldn't do. Um but there's like a lot of like weird, interesting sweets in that whole shop. And most of them are kind of like weird chocolate, which means that whoever did that had to like buy chocolate molds and make them themselves in the fucking props department. <laughs> and I want to meet that person. I love that person. <laughs> so they so they took a little more time and panning through like the apothecary they went to. And there was definitely a jar of snakeskin oil next to a jar labeled foreskins. Word. <laughs> I mean, necessary things, you know? Yeah, sometimes you need to have your foreskin oil. I wonder if, like, the foreskin goes on the tree, too. That's like an obvious plant thing. It's got to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, the foreskins are only for special occasions. Yeah, those special foreskins. 
Unlike burying a child, I guess. Yeah, which is what you do. <laughs> you know, that, that everyday occurrence. It's like, pretty normal. I, You know, I'm not sure how this really fits into what we're talking about right here, but I'm not sure where else I'm going to fit Throw it in. Throw it in. Uh, but I've always wondered what he uh, what he erases off of the blackboard when he first goes into the classroom. Oh, that's uh, a good, good thought. And I finally, uh, after trying to pause it a couple of times and not quite hitting it, just looked it up on the internet. And of course, people, the people, like fine folks of Reddit, have uh, have written it oh, down. Oh, good. Thank you, Reddit. Thanks, Reddit. Uh, so the Cockney Stone preserves the pith of the milk. The Snail Stone preserves the eyes from the darkness. <laughs> the Toadstone preserves the newly born from the weird woman, and the Hagstone preserves people from nightmare. What Dope. the fuck? <laughs> I want a shirt so of that. just go ahead. I want that shirt. And like, <laughs> file that all away. Like, this is very important knowledge. Oh, 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 I got it. So when you're like flipping around on like witchy Instagram, right? And it's just like little memes of all the crystals and what they do. We just need to make it for this. The, yeah. the Wicker Man crystal guide. <laughs> totally. Oh, people will buy that. All right. So that's a lot of stuff that we like about it. And also some bullshit about crystals. But what <laughs> didn't we like about it so much? Like, what are the lows for this movie? Um, The lows in this movie are the fact there's like six versions of it, which is kind of a bummer. And each one claims to be a like definitive version. I think the 2013 final cut is the one that I like because the story kind of flows a little bit better. So that was the first one I, I saw, and it claims to be the director's cut. It was I think it is, because like, it's restored from a print that he actually cut together. Yeah, and it was something that was, like, lost in a storeroom, and they finally just moved enough things. And yeah. they're like, oh, hey, that. And, uh, yeah, they had released it in 2013. We saw it at the Castro Theater on Halloween. And, and I remember, uh, James, you were like, oh, my God, like, this is a totally different movie. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's very <laughs> good. Um, but I... If I remember correctly, that one doesn't have the info dump or doesn't have it to like the same intensity as it does Hmm. in the version I just watched on Netflix. Um, And I just I hate exposition and I hate when you have to like catch me up with the story. And it kind of works in this movie because the underplot is like a murder mystery detective novel, Mm -hmm. you know, like very Agatha Christie and it has that same kind of like hard pivot where like the James Bond William tells you what happened and how it all worked but I just felt like it was a little too like on a silver platter yeah I'll, I'll take that I guess one of the low points for me is like when you stop to think about it the plot is completely ludicrous <laughs> well it's like an Ag- Agatha Christie novel no it's worse than that because it's like <laughs> It's, it's like absolutely ag- completely ludicrous. It's like, oh, we somehow identified that you would be the person that's perfect to water our fields. And so we have created this completely insane Rube Goldberg machine to get you here so we can murder you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was just going to say, like, for how terrible the 2006 version is, at least it does do that where it's like, yeah, there's a reason that this guy is the one. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I, I feel like it's because of a lack of world building so that you, they just walk into it. He has no reason to be there. He's an outsider. Um, and, and so we, we don't even get to learn along with him. We just have to like, I don't know, be told things, 
which is boring and lame. Like he would have some knowledge going into it because he lives in that region and he kind of like knows about these people. And so we don't even get the full like immersive experience of it. We get kind of told as we go along. And I think uh, that's something that Midsommar improves on definitely is like Mm -hmm. you really create like how they collect people. And and, and we'll talk about this when we do Midsommar at the end of the season. But um, it's just one of the points where the world building is what really matters in the storytelling. Yeah, I think I, I think that's part of the reason why I like the director's cut a little bit more is because while they don't go into more of the world building because what they have is pretty sparse, the story progresses in a way that makes a little bit more sense. I will, however, counter the fact that the world building is incomplete with I kind of like the fact that it doesn't give you a lot, that it leaves a lot to the imagination. Um, I think one of the things I don't love about Midsommar is how they give explanations for everything. Because, you know, in Midsommar, it's like um, they kill one of the guys because he pees on a tree. And it's like, that's our sacred tree. Fuck you. Which is like, okay, cool. Uh, I still think it's like learning right along with them, though. Yeah, which I get. And there are like, it makes sense in the in the context of that movie. One of the things I really like about this is that it's very obviously a mishmash of different things. Um, in terms of like paganism and it leaves a lot to the imagination and it's like kind of like oh like just kind of, you kind of have to kind of go with it and you're kind of like encouraged to go with the flow and like the, the like the main character very clearly doesn't <laughs> right I've heard it described that uh, the plot is something that is always happening around the main character and not in view of him Ooh, so like, like sort that. of the main the the main plot of the story is happening just outside of the point of view at all times. Mm. So you're only catching little glimpses of it. And so you have things like uh, the Christopher Lee speech, which are just necessary to give some sort of context to what's happening. Otherwise, you would have no clue what was happening. Right. But one of the things that I really like is how they use folklore in this movie to not necessarily explain the world, but to give it texture. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like there are always, like, things happening and there are routines that you're not really let in on but you know that things are happening all the time yeah i I think that like it allows for sort of a symbolist read of like what's going on in the plot it's not it's not very helpful on a uh linear storytelling sort of way but like i say i like the texture that it rends this like world that they're occupying absolutely absolutely um i one of the things i guess we're kind of talking about lois one of the things i don't like is how a lot of that texture that you spoke of comes from that sequence where he's just reading a book at the goddamn library. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I get that that's how he's learning about the world. So that's how we're learning it through him. But info dumps are always bad. As he was reading that book aloud, and then, like, you know, you would go and see all those exact same things. Yeah. Uh, I found myself thinking, like, that's a little on the nose, isn't it, guys? <laughs> but then I remembered that this isn't supposed to be, you know, a contiguous tradition of like pagan worship, like since, you know, Druidic times. Right. This is something that's only been going on since the 1860s, 1870s, whenever Lord Summerisle's grandfather showed right. up. Because that's what it so, is. It's his grandfather. Yeah. So these villagers probably learned it from that yeah, book. Yeah. So they had to make it up too, which is like 
pretty... They didn't know how to be pagans, but they, like, went to the library and said, oh, I guess we wear this... We wear this horse thing, and someone dresses up like a druid priestess, and I guess that's just what we do. It's, like, every girl that, like, went to Barnes & Noble and shoplifted a copy of The Grimoire of Lady Sheba and was like, I'm a witch now. No, totally. It totally is. So it brings up... And I was thinking about that really specifically because it brings up a lot of really interesting questions about the way we like express and interpret tradition and so I as I was watching this movie I suddenly had a very vivid memory of my mom explaining the maypole tradition and her religion and so she grew up for the first 10 years as a Mormon and so apparently and she would tell me she's like yeah in Mormon communities we did maypoles like we celebrated May Day and I was like that's a very weird thing for like Mormon people to do they have like no basis in that there's no reason for that and so I I went to try to verify if that was like a real thing that happened or just something crazy that happened to my mom and it turns out that no like a lot of uh, really specifically LDS kids do maypoles and so I found this website um, called uh, lifeafter.org and the the poster mentions um, this really cool quote that really hit it for me uh, the quote is It's impossible for the LDS church to rely on ancient church history since it has only existed for 185 years (laughs) (laughs) when they wrote this article in 2015. And and yes, which is this idea of like, how do you have tradition when you're starting something brand new? Yeah. And you you have to read it out of a fucking book and be like, oh, I guess that's the thing we're going to do now. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, it's like Wiccanism and a lot of those other kind of like neo-pagan stuff. Yeah, like the Samarail cult is basically only as old as Mormonism. Right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, essentially, yeah, because it was his was his grandfather, or his great grandfather, grandfather. Yeah, close enough. And grandfather in the seventies. Yeah, good enough. Some fucking golden <laughs> golden tablets that exploded. Good job, you did it. <laughs> um, but it but so it is interesting, and it it brought up this other idea about like what is. If we're copying things directly out of other people's texts and other people's experiences, right? And these are not our customs, I guess. I don't know the the word I want to use. There definitely is an opportunity for misinterpretation. And so more and more (laughs) recently, I've been hearing, um, I've been hearing and kind of reading over like little comments of like, maybe human sacrifice never really happened. And this was just metaphor, um, and so we have we're actually having a really difficult time deciding if sacrifice, especially in like South America, if human sacrifice actually happened or not, or if it was just the way that like the indigenous tribes were communicating like conflict of like killing a person. And so that was like a really interesting idea, like how much of this has been inflated and totally misconstrued just based on language. Totally. And I think that I think that segues pretty well uh, to talking about the Golden Bough. So these guys, when they when they were setting out to make the Wicker Man, they really wanted to avoid, you know, all the all the gothic tropes uh, that like Hammer had been dealing in success uh, with sort of the the earlier generation of British horror. They're like, no, 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 no. We're going to go back. We're going to go back to this like this like Celtic Druidic past. And we're going to show like the real creepiness that was going on. Um, and they basically took all of the religious practices shown in this movie from James Fraser's The Golden Bough, mm. which if you haven't heard of it, is like a very famous uh, book from 
the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, that was just this Victorian guy being like, here's what I think mythology is all about. <laughs> he was like the uh, Joseph Campbell of like pagan religions. But bad. Uh, basically, he uh, well, he he was one of Joseph Campbell's main influences. Oh, really? Huh. <laughs> I didn't know yes. that. He he was he was one of the like main predecessors to the idea of the monomyth. Oh, um, and he even he even admitted like this is not terribly scientific. This is just me see you know observing and writing down what I think. Um, and yet it's become sort of one of one of the foundational texts of like comparative mythology and anthropology of the last. 150 years but he would just sort of like repeat the stories that he had heard so caesar in his in uh talking about the gallic wars is like oh yeah one time i saw some guys build a giant wicker figure and they burned some dudes in it (laughs) and then james fraser's like oh this definitely happened i'm gonna write about this Uh, (laughs) which then got translated into this film so they were looking fairly uncritically at a hundred year old work of a man who was similarly similarly looking pretty uncritically at like myths from the past about a barbaric other people um so you get you know some there's probably some nuggets of truth that like made their way into this but there's also like a weird mishmash like telephone game collection of like what the pan-Celtic world was like, what ancient peoples were like, and like what mythology and religion at large is like. Uh, and it's really weird to see it sort of filter into this pop culture art form, which is now still informing people of what paganism is like today. Oh, absolutely it is. So one of the things that I came across too in that stuff, like it, and that goes along with this idea of what Adam Scoville was saying about um, part of the function of folk horror is to create its own folklore to perpetuate of itself. Um, and so one of the things that's mentioned in the movie is the the name of the tavern is the Green Man, which is also, um, so in like neo-paganism beliefs, translated into the story of the Holly King and the Oak King. Hell Yeah. And so it's this idea this that sounds like great villains for a D and D campaign. <laughs> so, so basically, I think I've talked about this once before. Like the Holly King and the Oak King are basically uh, Mister Freeze and Heat Miser from the <laughs> Island of Misfit Toys. I'm Mister Heat Miser. I'm Mister Snow. <laughs> uh, and so, what they are is they're the personifications of seasons, and so they're battling over the planet to take control and that's how seasons happen and so they're celebrated during midsummer and midwinter so yule and uh maybomb how is there not like some like folksy stony metal band that has made <laughs> like a concept album out of this shit i don't know but so to wrap it all the way back around uh one of like the big neo-pagan websites is called patheos and they actually, in telling that story, reference the Wicker Man. And, like, oh, reference yeah? the Wicker Man positively in one of the ways they discovered this part of the religion they now follow. Cool. <laughs> Super cool. Who said horror movies couldn't teach you anything? I learned so much from horror movies. I don't know what you're talking about. Seriously. There was that story um, when Neil Gaiman was writing American Gods. Mm-hmm. 
he was writing about like you know he's writing about like the the slavic goddesses Dude. and then there is the it's, it's sister dawn and sister sunset basically yeah. and he's like you know really for like story structure's sake there should be three of them uh and i really love iggy pop so i'm just gonna <laughs> write in there being a third one and call her sister midnight yep oh uh, oh yeah mm, nom, 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 nom. <laughs> and then afterwards mythology books started including Sister Midnight yeah, in did. their descriptions of those Slavic goddesses. <laughs> Neil Gaiman's like, wait, no, 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 no. <laughs> and it's become like a weird recursive loop because these people said it, then it's true. So these people reference it. Like, yeah. And at first he said like, oh, I, I don't know that like, maybe I feel bad about this because I made these gods up. <laughs> and then I realized like, oh, all gods are made up. So that's fine. <laughs> that's Literally all like, of them are made up. That's how that works. I'm just like continuing in the grand tradition of like making religious shit up. <laughs> Hell yeah. I mean, yep. that's how cults happen. Like, right. We just yeah. got to make it up. Well, and also we have to make it up. We have to isolate them and control their food source. Well, if you isolate them on an island uh, and make them dependent on the apple crop. Yeah. They're yeah. going <laughs> yeah. to actually. They're going to murder the policeman that comes knocking. Yeah. Well, I made a, a note about them, right? Cause he, Christopher Lee even says in one of his like info dumps, um, to Sergeant Howie, like we invoke labor by offering them old gods, and we control them by giving them the joy of having old gods and old religion, and so then they'll work harder and like be more awesome, and and like that's such a fucking cult thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's very clearly the cult leader. Like he was fucking the school uh, teacher, right? Right. Uh, unclear. Isn't that who that was? Who was in his um study when yeah. he was like playing the piano and she was half naked and they were drinking wine together? Sure, they I, very I, clearly were were about to or had just. Yeah, yeah, that's Miss Rose. I I think it's probably implied that they are fucking, but I think he's probably fucking all of them. Like uh, yeah. like any good like cult the, leader. Yeah. The registrar down at the uh, <laughs> at the like records office. Yeah. Down to the uh, land. Like Willow Lord for sure. Daughter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to sing the land. Cool. No. I do want to go back and write down uh, what Sergeant Howie says as he's praying in the Wicker Man, though, because it was like stunningly similar to like Caleb's prayer. Well, well the, I mean, it w- wasn't it the 23rd Psalm? Yeah, it was like, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yeah, yeah, though I walk through the valley of death, I shall fear no evil. Totally. Oh, really? Yeah. I only know that from that song. <laughs> Coolio? Coolio. <Yeah. laughs> Coolio taught me the Bible. Hell yeah. Sick. Uh, weirdly enough, he was singing Amish Paradise. Yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, uh, this is where, you know, you find out that Weird Al is a time traveler. Duh. <laughs> and Austin 316. I think we all already knew yeah, that. Right? Word. Yeah. yeah. You're right. You're right. <laughs> so, guys. The music. What the fuck? Oh, yeah. What do you think? What do you think about it? How does it affect the mood of the movie? Does it help or harm its like claim to be a horror movie? Oh, yeah. I think so. The first time I watched this movie, I've seen this movie a million times. I love it. The first time I saw it, I was thrown. I was like, "What the fuck am I watching?" But the more I watch it, the more I love it. The more I am, it's such an integral part of the whatever passes for the world building in this. And that it would be 
not even close to as good of a movie. Like, if any of the parts where they're singing, they just had, like, dialogue where they were explaining those things, those parts would be weaker for it, I think. And, yeah, the first time, on first viewing, it's like, when this, they break out in song, you're like, okay, this is not scary. I'm not scared <laughs> of this. Like, I, but I am. I'm scared of that. <laughs> yeah, it is just terrifying. <laughs> like, what is happening? Again, having just watched this oh, for right. the first yeah, time. First time you watch it. Uh, what did you think? It definitely threw me for a bit. Um, yeah, rightfully so. <laughs> like, I, I mean, it was weird and kind of creepy and off-putting. I don't, I, I, maybe it's just how my brain tends to work. But, like, I feel like I really have to be geared up for a musical. <laughs> Word. And so... Really be prepared. It's the only yeah. time you need preparation to watch yeah. something. Yeah. And so, like, watching this, it was a little bit a little bit jarring and took me out of it a little bit. I, I honestly, if I had more time, I would have gone back and watched it again. Or Honestly, I, I did download the director's cut, so that was an option as well, which I also didn't do. So, I'm a jerk. Well, uh, I mean, I but, didn't rewatch the director's cut. <laughs> no, we're good. Fair enough. I watched it a long time ago. <laughs> In yeah. 2013 with me when but, it came out. But I, I do, I think I agree that I know what this movie would be without the music because they put it out in 2006 starring Nicolas Cage. Like, <laughs> So I think for me, it works to make it a horror movie because like, right, if I was in a tavern and they just fucking broke out into song, that would be so terrifying. And it would be equally as terrifying as going into a place where everyone was like super nice. And that's how they usually try to convey that kind of thing. Like, right. And like these sure. culty movies, it's like everyone's super weirdly nice. And like, yeah. they don't care about possessions. Capitalism's not real here. Like everyone's just nice. Let's just hang out and be friends. And it's like scary because you're like, you're not fucking normal. Like what is like, you need <laughs> adversity. And and instead, they they do have, like, adversity because it's a sex cult and, like, there's a lot of, like, really interesting, like, lust and passion, which is conflict and jumping over fire. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have to have, like, an amount of hostility, if not towards each other, but, like, just an air of that. Yeah. Um, you can't be, like, pure and weird. So it's it's a different way of communicating, like, how just fucking weird they are. Like, they are all in on the joke. Admittedly, like you know, I don't think this movie is very scary, but I'm always stressed out about by movies or stories in general where everyone knows something that you don't know, like where everyone is keeping a secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like these like musical scenes like really enforce that sort of like that sense of otherness with this community that it, that they are all part of something that he is not part of. And like the 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 vibes of the the songs themselves are like building up this world too. They're like it's it's, it's a little trite to say that like the songs are a character in and of themselves, <laughs> but they're really like they really are though. They're really describing and like giving character to the world that they're occupying. And in that function, it's kind of like the uh, the drawings all over the like Harga buildings. Right. Yeah. In mm-hmm. um, like it's this artwork that seems like. It's a little bit creepy and a little bit sweet and like rustic and it's telling the story, but it's also inscrutable at the same time. I really, really dig it. I super agree with everything you just said. Additionally, I want to say that one of the main things about folk horror that we've talked about up until now is a sense of 
a kind of like totality of every of like what you just described like the totality of people knowing something you don't of there being a grand design that you are not privy to or that you are you know the focal point of that like and what you talked about earlier how the plot kind of happens around the main character the kind of grand design that like they are the center of that everyone's in in on a secret that they aren't and that the plot happens around them and not to them I think are pretty key things of a folk horror movie and I think that's why this is held up as a archetype an archetypal folk horror movie if not the movie that originated it right it is all all three of those points are absolutely necessary for a good folk horror movie I think you're you're absolutely right and it's like it's it was right on the cusp of like something new and something old it was like taking part taking place like in the middle of this sort of grander tradition of like british like folk music revival yeah but it's like it's right at the time when like psychedelic folk and folk rock were like really taking off in a big way so you had like bands like fairport convention and pentangle Mm -hmm. like making like waves uh so then to come out with this like this like kind of creepy kind of sweet soundtrack that's all like folk rock adjacent i just i think it was really really smart really really smart Um, choice Vic Pratt wrote an article about this about this movie and talked about about the music specifically uh, for the British Film Institute's website. And he says, quote, no library music here or dreary cod folk orchestral stuff. This film was brimful with terrific folk songs, which in defiance of the real ale rep of the hey, naughty, naughty, no warbling Whoa. were achingly hip and dripping with smoldering sexuality. <laughs> uh, Whoa. Okay. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and so much of the so much of the movie too is also like based around all these interesting changes that really identify itself as something different too. Like Christopher Lee was like moving away from his other title roles and came into this. There's a rumor that maybe he did this movie for free because he just wanted to distance himself from like his character acting. Um, but what <laughs> there and then there's reports of um the director before he made this movie he had just been making commercials and they like came and asked him to like make a movie and so it's like such a weird pivot you know from like oh i'm making commercials so i'm gonna make a movie you know oh i'm like this kind of actor and i want to be that kind of actor mm-hmm. um even Britt eckland um she was originally a model and this was like her first film and they're like oh okay we're gonna transi- transition you from being a model being in a film and and so it's it is a lot of changes um which is really interesting and and i think something in that that i found that was neat they didn't think this movie was going to do really well and so they put it out as a double feature with don't look now oh fuck really and so i think the ju- <laughs> juxtaposition between those two fucking movies yeah is brutal and is also like a really interesting look at you know like what was happening in not only horror cinema but like cinema at that moment well did Ari Aster go to one of those double features? Because his first two breakout movies were Hereditary, which is basic, which, basically which Don't Look Now. Which he admits is inspired by Don't Look Now. Yeah, and Midsommar. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, probably. I mean, that's one of the reasons like, this movie is so short. Like, they cut min- like several minutes off of it to make it under an hour and a half so that it could fit on the double bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, the uh, director's cut's 102 minutes long. 
But like uh, the same year that this was being made, Last House on the Left was being made. And I was like reading like people making comparisons between the music use and this and the music use and that. It's been a while since I've seen that. Um, is there like strange kind of uh, music in there? Yeah, there's sort of like almost like sunshine pop adjacent oh, like yeah, folk music sure. in it. Now it's kind of coming back to me. That make that strikes like a really weird discord with like you know the violence that you're seeing on screen with like the sort of Swedish folk music. Yeah, uh, sweet ish not swedish <laughs> that you're like we haven't gotten that you're hearing yet. played to a company yet and it's interesting how this this movie has a little bit of that going on but it also feels like more coalesced into like a cohesive whole yeah does anybody need another drink oh yeah oh fuck that dude. was let's that just, was a long one guys i think it might be time to i don't care what we're talking about next let's just <laughs> This microphone smells like a beer. (laughs) Man, you don't know how many shows I've played where that was true. Uh, I'm kidding, of course. I'm just thinking about the Billy Joel jammer, uh, Piano Man. Oh, my God. And I'm just thinking about the Tom Waits banger, uh, The Piano Has Been Drinking. Again, I'm I'm just thinking about the shows I've played where... (laughs) No, no, again, literally this is just every triggering. single one was. <laughs> so I have a completely off topic thought that maybe will take us in a direction. Let's do what it. What about those fucking masks? They were amazing. They rule? Is that? I mean, I don't know how much there is to say other than they fucking rule. So I got curious enough because I was like, is this the first? Because they're so prevalent in the film and they're used so often and so deliberately. To the point where, like, you know, Sergeant Howie's like, take those masks off to those kids, right? Because it's just, like, this mocking thing, and then it's used in the um, most epic round of musical chairs ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so I got really curious. I was like, is this the first time, like, animal masks have been used in a movie this way? And it wasn't. But from um, kind of what film history books have you know, written down. Um, apparently the first instance of usage of masks like that happened just a couple years earlier in 1968 in a movie called Curse of the Crimson Altar starring <laughs> Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee. Oh. Mm. Do you have any other information? Was that, was that, a, was that a hammer joint? Uh, it was a Tygon film. Oh, wow. From, oh, uh, awesome. What is that? Blood on Satan's Claw. Yeah, so it's it's yeah, a really fun wraparound. And, and uh, Witch Finder General. It's a really fun wraparound um, because it's on the same bill. And the movie actually does sound like it is a folk horror movie. I read the synopsis. It's like, guy goes back to his childhood ancestral lands. To you find, don't say. To find his missing brother. And things go awry. It's Couldn't very... <laughs> hijinks ensue. <laughs> it's very poorly, poorly, poorly reviewed. Um, but I am interested to see it, and I and I am curious, like how much was lifted from that for the Wicker Man, you know, not only because it came out about the same time, it's a vaguely similar atmosphere, and you got Christopher Lee making a crossover. Well, and he he was involved with, uh, if not writing the film, with like plotting it out. Like he 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 was there in like those sort of initial creative stages. So I I wouldn't be surprised if he helped like contribute that he's like a weird or was a weird pagan right <laughs> is he i don't I, know probably i don't know i feel like yes 
In my heart, Christopher Lee is basically. That's Lord why he Summer was such Al. a good Dracula. Word. <laughs> I don't. I don't yeah. really know how you could be Christopher Lee and not be a weird pagan. Thank you. <laughs> Seriously. So Robin Hardy mentions that they came up with the plot over a weekend. Cool. Because they were referencing this book called The Ritual. And, and yeah, Christopher Lee. I, it sounds like they picked him after they did the plot. But since they did the plot in a weekend, you know, I, I, I think Christopher Lee had a lot of space to make creative decisions and input for sure. That makes sense. All right. See you guys. You want to you want to hear how prepared I am for tonight's talk? Tell me. Yes. I read the fucking ritual. You fucking Fuck, did. Yeah, you did. How long? <laughs> All right. Is it Robert Patton? Is that correct? It is. I feel like that sounds not right, but I'm not remembering. And it, the last name's Patton. The... David, David. David Pinner. Pinner. Thank you. David Pinner. All right. Tell us about the ritual, Justin. Yeah. How, I they certainly get, didn't read it. Would they get wrong? Would they get right? Or it's it's just ritual. It's not the okay. ritual. The ritual is a movie that we'll address later. <laughs> <What>? uh, <laughs> ritual is a book that is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> um, it starts off well enough. Uh, you know, he he has a sort of sparse use of language that reminded me a little bit of Douglas Adams. Oh, interesting. And I'm like, oh, is this going to be like? kind of like a funny, like dry look at uh, ritual murders in the English countryside. Uh, and the answer is no, <laughs> it's just a bad <laughs> Bummer. You can really see that there's a lot of the DNA that makes its way from that book into this story, into this movie. The, the plot comparison is not one-to-one. Um, Naturally. Like there is like, you know, the sexy daughter who tries to seduce the uh, the detective and there's a scene of them like writhing on either side of a wall. So you can like, see how that made it in. Yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, the, the plot as a whole did not uh, stay intact very well in, in their reimagining of yeah. it. Yeah, clearly. Um, one thing I think was really successful is they had a, uh, a band of like creepy children in the original story Ooh. that functioned a lot like the group of kids in Blood on Satan's Claw. Sure. Which I think is like one of the strongest aspects of that. Like that like creepy kid cult thing I think is like really effective. Yeah. Um, and they had a, like a strong part in, in the book. Uh, but the, the guy who wrote it was not really a writer. He was an actor. Bummer. And at the time he was writing it uh, he was starring in the Agatha Christie play, The Mousetrap. Oh, cool. And you can really see him, like, trying to do Agatha Christie and telling this Aww. story. Yeah, that makes a ton of so, sense. And that comes through in The Wicker Man, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's sort of hard to do English crime drama without having that comparison. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah without, fair enough. Without inviting that. <laughs> um, but you can really tell uh, that that's what he was going for. And I'm going to spoil the ending for you here. I oh, mean, no. The spoiler is that you shouldn't read it because it is dumb and bad. Well, well, so I wonder. So... But it turns out the detective was the murderer the whole time. No! <laughs> the call was coming. He had a weird epilepsy the from the sun that made him murder people. Wow. Whoa. Wait, wait, back that one up. Excuse you? <laughs> Ouchies. He, 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 like, had pink purple eyes and could not see the sun, and when he was exposed to sunlight, it gave him a peculiar kind of epilepsy that, like, sent him into a murderous blackout rage. Yeah, like, normal. Yeah, like as a one normal, does. 
normal. guy doing a normal. Is that what happens when Superman's with the red sun? Yeah, sure, whatever. Or whatever. So I, I do Censoring. have in front of me maybe one of the movies that reasons that a uh, book was so bad is according to this uh, mental floss article from 2016, uh, the script the the ritual was actually originally written as a script. Huh. <laughs> um, and then when the director backed out, uh, David Pinner um, turned it into a novel. Cool. So it was a failed movie made book made amazing movie. I'm here for all of maybe, that. Yeah. Maybe he's just a bad writer. That makes sense. Like, it seems like it was meant to be like a campy British horror piece. Like, it seems like that's what he was going for. And I actually contest that you could still take that book and do something that's a little bit more faithful, an adaptation of that book, and still make a, like, fucking cool movie out of it that's different enough from The Wicker Man to justify its existence. You just have to write dialogue that's not bad. (laughs) And characterizations that are a little bit deeper than oh, I'm secretly gay and hateful. Boring. When I see the sun, I go into a blackout murderous rage. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that scans. I mean, honestly, I relate. Yeah. So the other note I have in this fun <laughs> factoid is that when um, the Wicker Man screenwriter Anthony Schaefer got a hold of, of this book, um, he decided the novel would not adapt to the screen well, and which is how they got the brand new outline. Because <laughs> he's like, this thing written for movies will not mm. make a good movie. <laughs> Maybe he knew something. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> like writing good dialogue. I think the dialogue in this movie was good enough. I think parts of it are good. A lot of it's yeah. kind of bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's said with so much conviction. Yeah. That it's sort of hard to tell sometimes. Well, you know what? Like, that's, that, bring, that brings me to an, something that I was thinking about earlier today. Um, so I've been confined to working from home for a while. But I've been watching a lot of TV while I've been working from home. And one of the things I rewatched or started to rewatch was the first season of True Detective. And um, does that hold up? I, I remember that. No, it, it super holds up. It's great. However, um, the character of Rust Cole, played by Matthew McConaughey, has some of the most cringy edgelord fucking dialogue that a character can have and it's elevated by Matthew McConaughey being Matthew McConaughey. Like (laughs) he's there being like the coolest guy in the fucking room, this world weary. You believe a lot of the horse shit that comes out of this guy's mouth because Matthew McConaughey is saying it. Similarly, Christopher Lee does that in this movie. Like, like if it was somebody other than Christopher Lee being the cult leader as evidenced by, I don't know, pick a shitty movie about a cult, the shit coming out of his mouth would be like, okay, whatever, go back to fucking 4chan guy. Like, it would come off as, like, you know, that cringy and horrible and edgelordy. Christopher Lee rules. Oh, yeah, totally. That uh, that whole scene where he's talking about, like, what my grandfather did because of expediency, I do because of love. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, yeah, right? Like, if anyone else was saying that garbage, like... It would play so poorly. Yeah. And yet when he says it, I'm like, yeah, I buy it. Yeah. When Christopher Lee says it, you're like, oh, yeah, dude, you love me. But yeah, (laughs) it it gets back to the point that like part of the reason movies as a medium and TV as a medium are so compelling is that they're collaborative. And so many different people have like a part to play. And like the writing is part of it. But 
it you a good actor or a um, the right actor can elevate writing that would be subpar coming out of someone else's mouth. So on that note, how did Nicolas Cage do as Sergeant <laughs> Howie? Yeah. James Baker as our resident uh, Nick Cage historian. Well, I mean, in the grand pantheon of Nick Cage movies, Liquor Man is near the top as far as Nicolas Cage craziness goes. <laughs> as far as good movies go, uh, it's pretty bad. And by pretty bad, I mean really bad. It still manages to be entertaining. Again, if only because of how cringy bad it is a lot of the time. Uh, Nicolas Cage is very aggressive throughout the entire movie for really no apparent reason. (laughs) I mean, wow. One of the greatest scenes of all time is uh, him just drop kicking a lady just because, just because, punching multiple other women in the face. Uh, There's a lot of mask knocking off of uh, kids uh, that happens in the remake. There's, There's a lot. There's a lot. The movie's a lot. It's Nicolas Cage is a lot. Holy shit, watch it, because, oh my god, it's great. I definitely watched that YouTube supercut of the kids fucking around with him in that movie, and it was just, like, fucking gold. It was everything I needed to see on, like, Tuesday. I was like, yes, 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 Just, like, seriously just running up to them and, like, hitting the mask off their face. Just like, all right, man, I feel like there's another way you could do this, but okay, sure. (laughs) Nicolas Cage actually feels really highly about that movie. Um, Oh, yeah. Well, he talks about it in one of the interviews about, you know, Mandy or the color out of space, right? Yeah. And and so he was actually really upset because he had a lot of creative advice to share that was not taken. I bet he did. And so my favorite one, which I think we might loop around to later in a different episode, um... So apparently uh, there's the part where they're like walking him through and he's in a bear suit mm-hmm. and yep. he wanted them to burn the character in the bear suit. Huh. And they were really not so having it. They were just like, hmm. yeah, no, we're not. That's not going to happen. It's too like transgressive. And he's like, no, I think it would be really good, guys. We should. Do no, that. guys. No, guys. <laughs> and so I going? think that just reaffirms Nicolas Cage's like cinema genius. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, if there's one thing I learned, it's that killing him won't bring back your goddamn honey. <laughs> it will not no, it bring won't. back your honey. Uh, nothing nothing will because we have put enough pesticides on our everything that bees don't exist oh, anymore. There are no more bees. Not the bees. Not, not the, the bees. bees. How did it burn? <laughs> How to get burned. How to get burned. No more bees. There's no more bees. Oh, great. Another plant name. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. Um, he So, yeah, uh, Nicolas Cage is brilliant. Um, that movie, less brilliant. but um, Oh, God. But no, seriously, do yourself a favor and, and just search like Wicker Man best scenes on YouTube because you, there's some classics. Him just pulling a gun on, on someone for their bike. That, that, yeah. Just, and, and just the deadpan seriousness of it all for him is what really makes it for me. It's whew, it's a it's a work of art, that's for sure. Uh they they did invite uh, Hardy to to have a guest spot in oh, he, the new Wickerman and he, he said fuck nothing no. To do with that movie. <laughs> he was like, yeah no fuck off. Hardy actually yeah. wanted to make his own sequel to the movie that well, never really worked out. 
But then there was like a spiritual sequel that came out, right? In like 2011 or something. I think that's right. Yeah. The Wicker Tree. The Wicker Tree. Tree. Yeah. I don't know anything about it. I just saw that that's a thing that happened. Yeah, same. I didn't. I like read a little bit about it. Like it's, you know, about a village in rural England and some shit happens that's creepy and vaguely related to Summer Isle. Yeah, it'll it'll be in our uh, folk horror, uh, you know, class readings to watch that and the (laughs) Curse of the Crimson Altar. I've seen the trailer for it, and it looks not terrible. You know, or they, at least they, they at least they managed to find three minutes of it. That day. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's probably truer based on everything I've read about it. Where it's like this movie is terrifyingly bad. But I love the idea of bringing Americans into this mix because you know, in in the old Wicker Man, it's it's you know, mainland sort of Anglo-Saxon Scot Howie against the sort of Pan Celtic version of like the Scottish like summer islanders. However, in in the in the Wicker Tree, they bring born again Texans to Scotland. <laughs> That's all I want. <laughs> well, I like the reverse they of that. Eat about the same things. Yeah, right. I like the reverse of that, and I don't know if we should put this in the podcast because I might actually write this. But a like Wicker Man like story where you go to like a community of you know, like shakers or some other like weird kind of like Southern Gothic evangelical Christian denomination um, where, you know, they're like hanging uh, rattlesnakes from trees and like all the other like crazy things that evangelical tent revival Christians have been known to do. And then they murder you because, you know, reasons. I'm, I'm into that. You you do it and, and you work with the exact same premise of like you know misinterpreting things and and taking yeah very uh uh creative control over how you explain like what ritual looks like yeah because then, you like, read it out of a book totally <laughs> and then instead of like weird um british folk music as the soundtrack you get you know what's his face from 16 horsepower to do the soundtrack yeah. <laughs> james Carnival already. God is. damn it, you're <laughs> right. <laughs> he just always wants to remake Carnival. It's his favorite show. Oh, God. Um, I love how, in our whole discussion of this movie, how little we've talked about Howie himself. Oh, fuck. Like, he just. That guy. <laughs> you mean. Like, he hasn't come into our discussions basically yeah, at all. Yeah, because he's Sergeant fucking Buzzkill. That's why. He's so boring. All right, here, here's a question for you Is he the protagonist of fuck the movie? Fuck no. No. He is absolutely no. not the protagonist. He's, he's some fucking like Vincent Price and Witchfinder General bullshit. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Bored with this guy. He just doesn't come out on top. Fuck that guy. I think the thing that I and like, right? I'm not gonna begrudge anyone who like gets married late in life or like or even waits to have sex. Are you gonna talk about how he's a fucking virgin? But yeah, both nerd. of them. But both things. He's to, a like, fucking. Virgin, be waiting to have sex and Lord and Summer Island is the be fucking a bachelor Chad. when you're like fucking 40. <laughs> that dude is 40. That's no. too long to wait. Dude, Lord, Lord Summer Isle is a fucking Chad and he cucks this fucking virgin that shows up on his aisle. <laughs> He's like, wait, no. This is the Chad way of doing things. You sacrifice your virgin ass so I yeah. can have bountiful apples and, you know, a bunch of like lovely maidens. That's why I should have got laid. Yeah. Yeah. Sucks to be you, doesn't it? Boring. (laughs) I was going to say literal and metaphorical apples. (laughs) (laughs) 
But I, I think that's interesting too, though, right? Because again, in a movie, we have um, not having sex be your downfall. Oh yeah, right. Good Which point. is interesting because we had a couple movies where having sex was what saved them, and now not having sex is their downfall. And I think that's like that's like a pretty transgressive thing in a horror movie mm-hmm. to do. It's it's pretty bold uh, and an interesting path to take. And and I wonder like how much of that is a comment on the Summer Isles folk, or how much of it is a comment on uh, Howie being a fucking nerd. <laughs> He's not a nerd though. Like he's just he's such he's a, a fucking square. Nerd. Yeah, he's just a square. He's like, you know, that fucking yeah, he's just a fucking square. Oh, like I'm so he's bored. a buzzkill. He he's the guy he's that kill. shows up to the party where everyone's singing about the landlord's daughter and then starts talking about a murder victim. Like what a buzzkill are you, dude? Like we're here getting drunk, like singing songs and you're fucking blowing it. Yeah. I do I do really love that one part in the movie though where um where Howie kind of like corners Christopher Lee and he's like what happened and Christopher Lee is like you're the detective <laughs> do your job dude I mean yeah, yeah. I, figure it out bro I don't know you came here not my problem God he sucks so yeah, much fuck that guy and it's not and it's not even just because he's like, you know, it's not just because he's like a Christian or whatever. It's also because he's a but fucking because- cop. Is that why he sucks, maybe? <laughs> Probably. But I mean, like, he shows up and then he's like, mine is the only correct way of doing things. And you all need to stop what you're doing right now and do them the way that I like them to be yeah, done. Yeah, he even says fake religion and fake biology. And you're just like, go away. No one asked you. Yeah. Yeah, Jack. <laughs> it's like coming into a Twitter flight two days late. It's like, ah. get out. Yeah. Like, fuck Retweeting off, reply guy. from last year. Yeah. I don't care anymore. <laughs> oh, Howie. You're such oh, a yeah. fucking nerd. Like, oh, man. I, I think, getting back to what you were saying earlier about the cast and how, like, all the different, like, characters that kind of show up, like... The heavy lifting done by all of these characters to just kind of, like, create the world building that they don't do is huge. And, like, the innkeeper is probably the best example of that. Do you know he's the leader of a mime troupe? Oh, I love it. <laughs> Why not? That guy's a mime. You've had good luck with mimes Can on you the show. you imagine? Oh, God. That fucking creepy He's weirdo. just hanging out with Hutterowski all day. At least he's not into clowning, you know? Like... <laughs> That would be the only thing creepier for that guy to do. Wait, have you ever known a mime that wasn't into clowning? Like, of course that guy's down to clown. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) I must say, like, the two of them line up really well, right? Because the trick is to get Howie into the fool suit. But like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the linchpin of the whole fucking plan, right? Right. But I feel like if I was there doing that, I would be very weary of getting in a fool suit, especially when you know that's the character that gets sacrificed because you right. already read it in the book. <laughs> like, he literally just read that in the book. He's like, I'll just put this on. It's cool. And you're just like, mm, that is some, that is some uh, sloppy detective he, work, sir. Like like many other Christians, uh, has very poor reading comprehension. <laughs> you don't uh, say. Yep. You, you guys, as as I was watching this movie, I thought maybe my hypothesis of folk horror being just regular horror with barnyard animals and it was falling apart because there was like no barnyard animals in this. I mean, like rat or the hare, maybe like 
you could like swing it that way yeah. and you get to the final scene there's sheep <laughs> there's ducks like there's so many at the end there's came through for you in the end there's really, a lot yeah it really it really walked it out there <laughs> they were like, they were just stocking the larder of the eponymous wicker man <laughs> with do you with all the barnyard animals to really drive that point do home do you know how long it takes to herd a go onto a second story wicker structure well, a no. while <laughs> let's talk about the fact that there was a cow in there on the third story how did it not kick its way out how did that happen how was that a load bearing structure is what I want to know where were the where were the fucking architects? Who was the contractor? Let's ask the. the I don't think the that Wicker Man's up to code. I, I don't think it to, was. I, I frankly don't think they it were was. ahead of their time. They were right up there with the the Wicker Man roller coaster that burned down. Frankly, hey. <laughs> did you hear about that? No. They what? made a Wicker Man roller coaster, and it burned down. Well, that makes oh, sense. I thought that was a complete joke, yeah, nope. and that is 100% so good. That's real. At a, ro- at a uh, fucking theme park in what northern England? I think so. Oh boy. First off, they don't have culture like we do. Let me just let's everybody go on a little bit of a thought experiment about what a theme park in northern England (laughs) would be. And let's think about how bleak and slate gray Victorian skies that shit would be. (laughs) I um. So I once had a nightmare. And it really messed me up because it was a, a a nightmare about like a weird dark amusement park where everyone was like zombies and weird and shit. And uh, the oh, thing so it's like a Goosebumps book. Yeah, yeah. So the thing that was like really scary for me was I got yeah, in a hatchet fight with a friend, and it was like really real. So like and, a normal day for you. And so I was like nervous because I I like that person. And I didn't want to do that. But when I woke up, the one thing I really remembered was. A, uh, the name Gothenburg and I was like that's not real and I looked it up and it's like a real place in Sweden yeah it's a real place in Sweden where the band at the gates is from yeah I think that's where I like got it from <laughs> in my head but they also have like uh, one of the world's like oldest Ferris wheels there too and I just imagine that that's, yeah. that's where this roller coaster was that's just sure it's in Gothenburg Sweden <laughs> into it <laughs> so bleak um, and they have hatchet fights for no reason <laughs> mm-hmm mm-hmm does anybody have any final thoughts about the Wicker Man? So one of the things that didn't really fit anywhere else um, was apparently how much Britt Eklund does not like this movie. Oh? So she played Willow, the landlord's daughter. Yeah, the landlord's daughter. I also want to mention that you have been seeing sea shanties for four days. You're welcome. And so this just sounds normal. You're welcome. This is who you are now. Hark. <laughs> but Hark! <laughs> Uh, so uh, Britt Eklund, who played Willow, was super not into this movie, and she was pretty upset when it finally came out. Uh, she, in an interview, uh, <laughs> disparaged the movie first by mispronouncing it, by calling it the Wiki Man, which is pretty fun because she's just over it. And she, so she noted how um, the movie was shot in November, but it was supposed to be set in the spring. So it was really fucking cold out, but no one was allowed to wear a jacket. And she was just super miserable the whole time. Um, And she also didn't want to be nude from the waist down. She just thought that wasn't a thing she was going to do and and not How dare she have autonomy over her own body? How dare she? And so then um, they snuck in a body double for her for that that, weird song, dancey scene. And 
the quote she gives is a couple weeks into filming i noticed my skirts felt tight and i took a night train to london after doing a test with my doctor and was informed i was pregnant i was told i told absolutely no one on set the next day i was sitting um in my trailer and she did tarot card reading and she said you're going to be with child and so while she was away getting um this pregnancy test from a doctor they snuck in a stripper from Glasgow who did the whole scene and then just like hung out on set for the rest of the shoot and hung out and she had and Britt Eklund had no idea about this the whole time and so the movie goes to theater and she goes to see it and not only does she notice it is not her body dancing (laughs) you don't say all her lines got dubbed by a Scottish actress they brought in wow and they didn't bother to tell her that either thing had happened well, wow. yeah, they they dubbed it because she's Swedish, right? Right. Like, literally, they they just thought her accent was too thick. Right. They're like, this is wrong, and this like messes up the tone. Which is weird, because but just to that, not tell her. Isn't the uh, the woman in the records office have a weird accent that's not Scottish I mean, or English? Well, that that's exactly why is that uh, they they brought in Ingrid Pitt who is Polish. Yeah. Um, because she was like, she was like a big name in British horror in those days. Like she had done a bunch of those, like uh, she had done a bunch of like Lady Dracula films for Hammer. So she was like a draw. Cool. And then the producers of this movie said like, oh, we can't have two ladies with foreign accents. That would be weird. So like the the, the more famous one, we will let her speak her own wow. lines. And then the other one, we'll just dub over with a Scottish lady speaking. Yeah. And then they brought in a whole nother person to do the singing voice. Mm-hmm. So there are effectively four people playing Willow. Yeah. And and to uh, the complete like lack of informing Britt Eklund. <laughs> yeah. So I think she's allowed to be a little salty for that. Yeah, no, she's totally allowed. Like that's, that's pretty fucking rude. Um, the other note but you know if she doesn't want to do a nude scene and they bring someone in to do a nude scene I don't know if you get to be mad about that I mean you should tell her should you I mean it's it's okay to you don't have to keep it a secret I guess yeah no that's like maybe like you it's not your prerogative to tell them but there's no reason to not also, don't mistake what I'm saying for like shaming her for not doing the nude scene. Like, no, totally. like nobody they, they should, had a vision. Nobody and they should be to forced to be naked for fuck's sake. But like, you know, if she doesn't want to do it, you should assume that they would, you know, bring in somebody who did. Right, and and it full nudity is like seems pretty important to that scene. Yeah, you're doing like sexy magic dancing. Like, it's not. It's really, in a lot of ways, not different from the implied sex scene in Hagazusa. It's like a spirit, like a weird witchy tantra thing. So, so I'm okay with that. But, you know, they could have just let her know. So she wasn't fucking shocked to Fair find enough. out that she wasn't in the movie. My my only other real final thought was I did find out. Um, they, so they did put goats in, a, in that weird wicker man structure. Cool. And they got all the animals out before they set it on fire. So all the animals were fine. Oh, good. But none of the animals liked being in there. And so uh, the goats... There was a goat that actually peed on the camera crew stationed under the wicker. That man. was my first thought uh, when they like were bringing him into that structure that was full of animals. Is like how much like urine and feces was in all because they of were those all scared. So the, like all yeah, the all those were animals peeing. are flipping the fuck out. And I don't know if anybody here has been around an animal when it's flipping out, but they <laughs> tend to pee and shit themselves. Like <laughs> Final same, thoughts? same. 
you also pee and shit yourself when you're freaked out? Correct. <laughs> Is this movie a horror movie? Yeah. You get like some some uh, kebab fucking Howie. Yes. What? <laughs> if you burn someone to death. How does that make him a kebab? Movie. They didn't stick a stick up his care. ass? Like, Marshmallows? That you know of. That I know, you know of. You're of, right. But he was on sticks. I wasn't in there. There could have been a stick up his ass. <laughs> there was. I mean, there quite literally was a stick up his ass. There was a pretty big stick up his ass. You know what I mean? I was just trying to think of like English food. <laughs> Kebabs? And you went with kebab? <laughs> they like that. Wow, that's... Which is also spectacularly not English. But they like... I think it's their national food, though. Yeah, I think Donner Kebab might be their national food. <laughs> no, I, let's like, talk... I actually think it's their national food. There's something about imperialism here. Yeah. Colonialism. There's an imperialism joke in there somewhere. Yeah. I'm just not going to find it. Uh, I was reading sort of a number of articles about about like folklore and sort of like the academic traditions of charting folklore. And woe is colonialism like all over that mess. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think it's really valid to be like wary of at least xenophobia when we're talking about like the these sorts of themes in, in folk horror. Um, we have mostly managed to have it not be a huge well, issue I think we... because you're de- because you're dealing with like groups of colonizers dealing with other colonizers. Yeah, yeah and I think we kind of mentioned in a different episode on how like this mode of storytelling really does open itself up to xenophobia and and how I am actually surprised that most of the movies don't get there. Like, it it is starting yeah. to me that there isn't more. But I, uh, I, I read an article the other day uh, called Wicker Men and Straw Dogs. Hmm, interesting. Which talk, talks obviously about this movie and Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs. I love that movie. And it talks about, like, an internal colonialism towards mm. like Celts basically um, so it's sort of the the idea of the Anglo-Saxon Britain versus the the Celtic Britain um, I mean I think the Irish will still tell you that's happening I mean oh absolutely yeah. absolutely they, they didn't get along don't oh. get along what I don't what? understand huh? what? I mean I think they're only Brits because the Brits said they were <laughs> yes that seems right so like it, it talks about like the idea of uh, you know there sort of being like this sense of there being a degenerate like otherness embedded within the society of the British Isles mm-hmm. that that people exploited in artwork especially um, and specifically they talk about they they talk about straw dogs but they also talk about ritual um, which isn't set in Scotland. But it is set in Cornwall, which I guess already sort of had like, you know, these sort of like other mystic associations like in British society. Mm-hmm. Like, anyway, moving away from that. <laughs> no, I like, and I like that idea a lot to pay attention to, even if we're not actively working from tropes of xenophobia as we work through folk horror. Like, where are the aspects of colonialism? Well, and you like you think about like I was talking about earlier, like James Fraser in the Golden Bough, like he is taking sort of uh, Roman or Germanic or Anglo-Saxon views of like what the Celtic other is 
and then sort of assembling it into these like universal quote unquote universal like story structures which then get translated into this movie about like which is purporting to be like how it actually happened yeah so it's purporting this like sort of sketchy idea of the other that's interesting yeah very like uh written by the victors kind of bullshit that is interesting. Well, Justin, you said something about the, like, um, was it Cornwall has, like, mythic associations in British history? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those sort of, like, hubs of, like, a separatist, like, Celtic identity. Oh, that makes sense. So, in, in relation to this, like, being horror, though, like, it's, most of it, it you know, it reads like a, uh, like, a police procedural, and that makes sense. It's coming from a book written about a police detective writing you know someone writing in the milieu of agatha christie it's then being screenwritten by someone whose main experience was in doing television police procedurals and acted by someone who is mainly known for doing like police stuff so like you kind of get like a law and order feel throughout this whole thing and then it turns into a horror movie at the very end i think that's true and i think which is true of some, at least of Kill List that we've watched. And I, I was feel just like- going to say, yeah, it definitely, like, you know, it's similar to Kill List in that way. Like, it's all, I mean, obviously much earlier and less less brutal version of Kill List. So in, in this idea of um, kind of folk horror as procedurals that turn into horror movies, because I think it's pretty easy to say that, like, most of, most of the f- movies we have watched so far all of the horrific things and the climax happen at the at the very end. Yeah. And up until that, it's a very like trying to figure out the situation and like come to terms with what's happening and maybe there's even a bit of a mystery. And so Adam Scoville calls this the folk horror chain theory. And okay. it's it's the idea that a major component of folk horror is that it is a chain of events that is put into motion to create an unavoidable ending. So to get to our horrific ending we must have a series of events that once you do them, they cannot be undone. So um, how he shows up and, you know, he's so first he has to show up and then he has to find a reason to want to stay. So he has to decide that everyone's lying to him and then he has to prove that everyone has lied to him. And then he has to realize that this is the day that she's going to die. So he wants to stay to figure it out which mm-hmm. leads to his sacrifice and, and his willingness to become the sacrifice. And and a lot of the other movies walk through this the same like series of events of, you know, the the ending, the horrific ending can't happen unless you walk through this precarious line of perfectly executed, you know, Rube Goldberg machine. Right. Um, which is like the the premise of like a lot of like really Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes like there are these contrived stories of it happened in just this exact perfect way to have our magical outcome and and the thrill in the movie is explaining explaining the chain and in folk horror mm-hmm. the way we explain the chain is being like and you're fucked now <laughs> and we show, we show consequences for the chain whereas in uh, procedurals the consequences first with like a murder or yeah. whatever I would argue that um, the chain of horrific events is really just um, Howie being a 40 year old virgin <laughs> <laughs> no coming back from that uh, one there really isn't buddy <laughs> sorry that bro. should be a movie <laughs> yeah you know I it, think it'll never be a hit I it'll think, never work you know there's this guy he was on um 
this small show called The Office. What? Uh, I think he What's played that? the boss for the first couple of seasons. He'd be perfect for that. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I think we're over Ricky Gervais as a people. Ah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> so yeah. So again, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the boring outcome of this is a folk horror movie because it follows the folk horror rules and therefore it's horror. It's yeah. a different type of horror, you know, and and something that's supposed to kind of expand the way we look at that genre, but horror nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we've had a similar conversation with the last couple movies we've talked about where I I don't necessarily find this movie to be that scary or like horror in the same way that most of the other movies that we've talked about on the show before are horror. But yeah, I, I think it does fit the rules that we've you know discussed so far and and does fall into the full core category. Yeah. It, you know, even if it's not like the most horrific horror movie ever or anything like that. I feel like the list, first off, when people start applying like the most horrific horror movie ever labels to things. Sure. Oh, it's so uh, exhausting. Is it A, exhausting and B, um, and I'm not accusing you of doing this. Sounds like you are. <laughs> right? I know. I knew that would be your immediate reaction. Yes. What I'm saying is like, it's more of like a, when like the marketing or whatever of those things come out is A, they are always lying and B, Nobody wants to actually be scared because if they did, they'd watch 120 Days of Sodom and fucking <sighs> film. Yeah, I don't want to watch snuff films. Nobody wants to watch that I, shit. I don't watch <laughs> Human Centipede for that reason because, like, no, there's nothing that movie has to offer. Yeah. Like, I don't want to be, like, squicked out by every moment of a movie. I want to be, like, challenged and and partially terrified that I can come back from and take a nap. Right. And I think like eat my popcorn. What what I'm at what I'm kind of like trying to get at and what I think your comment jogged uh my memory of is I don't know if we need to even judge horror movies on how much we're actually terrified of them and how like, you know, objectively scary they are. Like I think that's part of it. But I also don't think that that's the end all be all because if it was, you would just go watch a Serbian film. Right? I, I don't I don't think it's the end all be all, but I think there is a certain line where if a movie isn't scary, like wh- where's the line between something being a horror movie and something just being dramatic or well, like a I drama? Think it, I think or something. it goes to that like a point or, or a thriller. Yeah, yeah. I think it goes to that point of objection that we've talked about in the past. Like you have a visceral reaction somewhere. Some, yeah. somewhere in your ethos like you know whatever you just and it, it's not helpful right because it's such a, a fucking scapegoat to be like oh it's an unnameable feeling <laughs> that makes it a yeah. horror like bullshit but but that I, working with that idea of objection and rejection and um, something so awful that you want to cover your eyes but you can't look away and I think that's part of it I think it's part of that like feeling of like I I I shouldn't be watching this. Yeah. This seems perverse. Yeah, it's like perverse. Totally. And, uh was it hereditary where they talked about we feel like we're watching something we shouldn't be? I was think the yeah, I think maybe I think are, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, a critic said that. I feel like, yeah, I don't I don't know who it was. Yeah. But it's it's part of that. It's part of like that squicky feeling and that feeling like you've invaded you're knowing something you shouldn't know now 
And and we get away with that in a, a Cliff Notes version of being like ghosts and jump scares. Not supposed to know about those, but I'm equally not supposed to know about, you know, some terrifying human sacrifice ritual in a make-believe island. I think that's something that this film does really, really well is like sort of lets you in on this secret that you maybe feel like you shouldn't be in on. And even though it like is light in tone a lot of the time, like there are really like creepy aspects of this that I think linger in a way that like some, you know, some of those like cornier, older like horror movies don't really do. And in like in addition to this being, you know, the prototypical folk horror movie, it also is like one of the sort of first ever like big like uh, momentous uh, daytime horror movies. Yeah. Like it's it's preceding Texas Chainsaw Massacre by a few years. Like up until this point, like you know people would point to like The Birds or like Tomb of Lygia if you're like looking on like the the British side of of horror making like as like things where all your scares aren't obscured by darkness and night, like things are happening in full daylight. And I think that this was influential not only with that horror, like, you know, folk horror idea, but with the idea that you can have your, like, creepy things happening in full daylight. Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, and I think, I I really love that you say that too, because it's, it's, so I, I think back to Hush, right? And so they made Hush and they, they wanted to write a challenging scenario to work through. And so they, you know, then made a character, they made a movie with no dialogue. They're like, we want to make a, a really hard movie, so I want to make a movie with no, with no, di- no dialogue. And that kind of like pushes filmmaking. And in the same way, this kind of pushes horror by like, okay, we don't get to rely on like the, the crutch of night you know, the scary things that go bump, the the things that waft in and out in the twilights. Like, we're going to take in the daytime, and so it's going to be a lot harder to be scary. And so we're going to have to, like, really work work out of that box. And I think that's really interesting. Um, I, And I think as we were kind of hashing out this idea, I, I, one more thing kind of came to me. I think part of horror is is not only that idea of seeing something that I shouldn't see, but because I have seen that thing, I am now vulnerable to that thing. That thing is now real and that thing can now happen to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think yeah. that's a different, like you watch thrillers, you're like, that's not going to happen to me. That That is a very uh, compartmentalized situation with this person and this stalker and this weird shit. And I'm not Freddy's that scared not gonna of it, get me. you know, but like horror, I'm just like, oh, 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 I could be targeted to be burned at a wicker man now. Yeah. Like that's a real, that's on my radar. There is a dude named Ryan Hollinger who makes really great video essays on YouTube about horror movies. And he, uh, he made a a piece about the wicker man about the same time that Midsummer came out. I think like he, he was linking those things in a, in a way that a lot of people were. And he, he made a video essay called why the, why was the wicker wicker man considered scary? And he talks a lot about, uh, daylight horror in that. And one of the things that he says is by placing instinctual discomfort into an ordinary everyday setting, that means that anything and everything could become hostile. Uh, and I really love that idea. Like it removes that sense of safety. Like, 
you know, if I can just make it till dawn, everything will be all right. If things are ha- bad or happening in daylight, they can happen at any time to anyone, yeah. including you. And that's like so much of the premise of Via, right? He's just waiting for the, the sun to come up and everything's going to be good. I can take the blankets off my head. Well, that also gets to something that we were talking about a little bit earlier, especially about folk horror, where it's the totality of the conspiracy against you. It is the secret that everyone else has that you don't. And it is deeply unsettling and nowhere is safe. And the fact that, you know, that's what makes these kind of like daylight horror movies that much more creepy in and, that context. And maybe it's not even dangerous until you know about it. Yeah. well, that's Because the, if, so, if you get hurt and you don't know, then you just got hurt. But it's not dangerous until you find out. So this is a horror movie, maybe. Yeah, so it's a horror movie. Obviously, it's a folk horror movie, as we've spent the last hour and a half, two hours, talking about. Who is this movie for, ultimately? Perverts. Perverts. <laughs> yes. Were you indignant about the Harvey Weinstein case? Watch? No. Yeah, do nope. you want to see what our world leaders actually do when you're not looking? <laughs> so, uh, kind of seriously, I haven't seen this movie yet. I think it I think it just came out this year, 2020. Um, there's apparently a movie called The Boy, which was directly inspired by The Wicker Man, and everyone cool. is saying has, like, a lot of straight lines between them. Um, and, and more so inspired than maybe Midsommar was. So, I, I can't back that up. Uh, it was just what I found in my research, but uh, get that on your watch list, maybe. Uh, this movie is actually for people who are fans of unexpected things in coffins. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is for those like Scottish or Irish kids that you went to high school with that spent a lot of time learning how to do the sword dance. What? Is, that's not a thing. Oh, yeah. That's, hell it is. Sorry. It's a very specific thing. <laughs> I, I have no idea. I have not experienced that. I will take your word for it. Fair enough. I don't know. Wait, no. Nobody had those kids at their high school? Just me? Cool. <laughs> what? Wasn't there a thriving community of Morris dancers in Santa Cruz? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, I've only seen, like, uh, step dancing. I don't know what this thing is. Yeah, well, the sword dance is, like, what all what those dudes with the swords in the kilts were doing. Oh, I didn't pay attention to that. Oh, I don't know okay, moving on. <laughs> um, Justin, who's this movie for? This movie is for drama nerds. Yeah. Uh, this movie is for animal mask enthusiasts. Ooh, so all <laughs> of us. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and say if you're a hippie edge lord or the guy who plays a ukulele at the party, this movie's probably for you. Do you like cult movies for all the wrong reasons? You might <laughs> like this movie. <laughs> Oh, uh, shit. Do I like cult movies for all the wrong reasons? <laughs> yeah, everyone's going to wonder about that. Hmm. And with that, you've wasted another perfectly good couple of hours listening to an episode of What's Wrong With Us. Please like and subscribe everywhere that fine pods are casted. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on the Google Play Store, Spotify, the whole nine yards. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at What's Wrong Pod, or uh, eventually there's going to be something on our website, I think, uh, which is What's Wrong With Us on XYZ. Maybe some news and updates. We do have a Patreon. 
That's we a do. Thing. There's yeah, a thing there's a up. thing on there. Uh, we have promised to write more things. I have an out because I'm writing a thesis. You oh, guys, whatever. You guys have no reason to not be putting things on there. Mm. Uh, and it's patreon.com slash what's wrong pod. I think we have uh, someone maybe to say thank you to. Uh, there's a couple people. Oh, yeah. Anybody... I mean, one of them is on the podcast. Yeah. Hey, Justin. Hey, thanks, Justin. Thanks. Uh, another one is a member of my family. Laura, what up? What up, Laura? Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Not all heroes wear capes. That's right. Uh, Some of them wear animal masks. <laughs> uh, and the last one. Uh, thanks to Prosher for supporting us. Um, we're getting really close to being able to afford a subscription with Alamo Drafthouse so we can watch movies um, and bring more content. Justin, what have you got for us this week? Uh, show us your tunes, Justin. Well, if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm at jlawdev, and I've actually been making uh, artwork for all the movies that we've been talking about on this podcast. Hell so yeah. If you want to go check that out. I also run an illustrated pop culture recommendation blog called Drawn to Culture on Facebook and Instagram, so you can check that out. Uh, and for those of you on Spotify, uh, you can look up at jlawdev on Spotify, and I have a playlist that I've been working on for about three or four years now at this point called Wicker Man Vibes <gasps> uh, that has a bunch of, uh, you know, creepy British folk and, you know, and, and music from the 70s and all sorts of good stuff that I think would fit in with anyone who really digs this topic. Fuck yeah. So look up uh, Wicker Man Vibes. I am subscribing and I'm going to influence the rest of my thesis with it. Oh, God. <laughs> and that's how my wife got snatched away to nod by the Holly King. <laughs> uh, one, one of the songs on there is by an uh, artist named Lisa Knapp who did an album and song called Till April is Dead. And if you want to watch a music video with really good animal masks in it, Till April is Dead. Check Justin, it out. Justin, I would also encourage you to find the Comus album First Utterance and freak yourself out while listening to it. Wow. Awesome. Have a lot to do. And, until- and, uh, and Comus got a Michelin star in Oakland, right? That's, <laughs> that's exactly, it's the same thing. Yes. Same. The Nailed British it. folk ran, band runs the mi- mi- the Michelin star restaurant in Oakland. You're completely correct. Yeah, Talk about a pop up, huh? Yeah, Weird hey. theme pop up. <laughs> <laughs> and until next time, what's, what's wrong with what's wrong you? with you? What? What? Oh, uh. wrong. Wrong <laughs> with <laughs> you. One, uh, one of my friends uh, once saw like uh, two pretty Swedish girls like walk past him on the street, um, and I, I guess he heard them speaking Swedish and recognized it. And uh, they they walked past, and he uh, he he turned to his friend and said, "Ah, oh, Swedish girls." And from a block away, they spun around and said, "Yes, you are correct." <laughs> And he utterly panicked. He's like, uh, uh, I didn't know they would hear me. I don't know what to say. They are it. I've been to Gothenburg, <laughs> which he had not. It was just the first thing that he could think to say. And they said, cool. And then left. I mean, the Swedish are a terrifying response. people. <laughs>